Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riando, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about happy sleepover memories with games, uh, specifically with games. <laughs> uh, and we are totally ripping off uh, a gaff thread, a really happy and wonderful and sweet gaff thread that's basically about like your happy memories when you were young and you know you had like a sleepover party with friends or, or cousins or whoever, basically. And you played games all night and it was really fun and really great. And it was, you know, just like a, a cherished and warm memory in your heart. Rob, do you want to start with this? I have a few. I definitely have like several games that are so dear to my heart because I had these sort of cherished sleepover memories. I will. Uh, yeah, I mean, we did not. It was not a formal sleepover, but it was a D&D session that went like super late into the night. Excellent. <laughs> and it was one of those. Um, so the entire D&D session was a placeholder. Like it wasn't even supposed to be a thing. Uh, because we had one of our major players, uh, sort of regular in the group, wasn't going to be able to play that week. However, in the previous adventure, his uh, his rogue had gotten trapped in some caves, uh -oh. uh, like basically like a goblin haunted mine. Uh, and so the party was safe on the surface, but we had this character who was canonically like trapped in the caverns, and so we were like, you know, what the hell? This could be a good session. It'll be a rescue mission, and he'll tag back in uh, next week. So we start running this uh, this campaign, and it's like four or five people uh, that night, and it's one of those um, like late fall evenings where the like. You have a weirdly like gentle and steady snow oh, in the late fall, yeah. And so, like while we're playing, uh, it goes from being a crisp autumn evening to being like an early winter night. Oh my god! Uh, out outside, and things do not like. I timed the adventure out pretty well, and indeed, in about three hours, they encountered and rescued the abandoned player character. <laughs> And that was all I had. That was all I had scripted out. Like they had completed the objective. All they had to do was basically, as you like, it was like light level design, right? Like the the entire layout of this mine was arrayed around a central like elevator shaft. Did you draw it out? Was, Did you physically? Yeah. Draw? So I I oh, never actually sure. played D and I'll admit it now, and I'm a little sad because I feel like I would have fucking loved it as a kid. But okay, so so you draw maps, right? That's how you. Kind of get the lay of the land as a yeah, DM was, or was it DM or GM in D and D? Uh, with with D and D, it's DM. Okay, because you're a uh, dungeon the generic master. RPG right? term is, okay. Yeah, term is GM. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and I was never particularly slavish in my devotion to the actual rules of D and D. Like they, like I, you know, I, combat followed the standard rules. That I, I tried to adhere to the system, but I never really got too hung up on sort of the, uh, you know, grid-based combat. Um, you know, basically, I, like, D&D for me was a platform for storytelling. Sure. With some combat systems to, and some task resolution systems to, like, help uh, adjudicate some of the choi player choices and some of the dramatic tension. So this was all hand-drawn on grid paper, Um and in later years, D&D &D has become very, a very, like, minis-heavy game in some ways, <laughs> where, like, you need to have your, like, grid on the tabletop, and, like, people are moving your, 
miniature figures around a grid. That wasn't me. Like it was <laughs> like we definitely like sketched it out. We drew it up like uh, you know, uh football plays in the dirt, right? Yeah. Sort of scratching out like who was gonna go where and who was doing what. And as DM, I just kind of fudged it where necessary. But I did have like a layout for what this thing looked like. And all they had to do was get back on this elevator, pull themselves back to the top of the mine, and they were out and the session was over. And then I don't know how this starts, but they start trying to, like, they start having a meta conversation (laughs) about this session and how it kind of feels, like, unusually for me, there wasn't, like, much of a point to the session, dramatically speaking. Like, it it had been fun. We'd, We'd had encounters, but we hadn't, they hadn't really accomplished anything except rescue a dude, maybe get a little bit of treasure. And so I'm sitting there. And I'm just like, I have nothing. There's nothing left. But I watched them convince themselves that I must have something else planned. (laughs) I wouldn't have let them get this deep in the mine without there being more. So they decide to keep exploring. And the other thing is, this has been a pretty well, like, I sort of constructed this adventure so that, like, they were no longer... Uh, an immaculate party by this point. Like they were a little dinged up from the battles and everything. Uh, they like they, they were in good shape, but they were not like they were a little depleted. So they keep adventuring, and basically, like they they start like trying to explore at like nine or ten at night, and it turns into the entire night. Like they just keep going deeper into this thing. I'm like, okay, you guys want you guys want some stuff to you want you want some shit to go down here. Like I will like shit will go down down here. Uh, so things keep getting like more and more dire, and it keeps getting later and later. And it's just this magical memory of like the snow piling up outside, and uh, the group getting in deeper and deeper shit. And eventually, like. They did find some sort of treasure at the, like, you know, they found some good shit uh, that sort of loosely justified them staying down there. <laughs> but they were in they were in bad, bad shape. And the hilarious denouement of this was they eventually get back to the elevator, this time fighting their way back. And it becomes stuck. <laughs> um, somebody, uh, I, I played with a critical fumble rule, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I, uh, I did. So somebody jams the elevator mechanism. And the only character who can go get it is the rogue character they rescue. <laughs> so we had had, I'd gotten the green light. Like, we can use this guy. We can use this character uh, for this session. Okay. So they send him up there. And he scales this rope and starts clearing the mechanism and pulling the group uh, to safety. And then um, he gets hit with a crossbow bolt, (laughs) fails his balance check, and plummets to his death. No! Yeah, totally. So they rescued him. Then they kept adventuring. They got some mediocre treasure. Uh, they got really jacked up, and then they killed the guy they were rescuing. Oh. And at this point, it wraps up, and it's like four in the morning. Oh. Uh, and you know, everyone's like, "God, are we like we're gonna have to tell Tom about this." Like, "Oh God, it's not my fault." You know, oh. you're the one. And they start all blaming each other and everything. Uh, and you know, the party gr- like breaks up, and uh, in the end, like 
you know, everyone goes home and I was just so high on that role playing experience that I just ended up like walking through the streets in this like early, early winter snowfall uh, at like four in the morning, uh, just sort of thinking about like what a perfect night of like role playing you've been with friends. Oh, my God. That's so good. You just that was a movie that like that was an entire like there was a beautiful arc there. That was amazing. Oh, it it felt. By the way, it totally felt like a shit, like a bad heist, like comedy. <laughs> uh, when when the party was like convincing themselves to do dumb shit and like, if you ever read um any of the John Dortmunder novels, I've not. Sadly. Uh, so there's this author Donald Westlake. He wrote this. He he. I think he had another like. Either Donald Westlake was the pseudonym, and Richard Starkey was the real name, or vice versa. But in one name, he wrote like hard, like hard-boiled mysteries. The other name, he wrote like comedy crime capers, <laughs> and they were really, really good. But one of the great things is that the main character, John Dortmunder, would like create these brilliant heists, like. You know how you see the heist go down in Ocean's Eleven yeah. and it's like perfect and clockwork? He did that. And he was like a legitimately like genius thief. <laughs> but everything always went to shit on this guy. <laughs> and so part of the joy was just watching like the, the, his, you know, his usual crew of characters, a perfect plan. How is it all going to go hysterically wrong? <laughs> and that was, that was D&D at its best with that group of people. Oh, God, that's beautiful. I don't have, I apologize. I don't have stories that are that good. They're not that like, oh, perfect. I don't know if it's that good. I just told everyone a D&D campaign story. That's, that's was, like no, a it was stereotype, great. man. It was great. You had, you had a lot going on. You had drama. You had highs. You had lows. You had, oh, and then you had a walk in the snow. Like, oh, my God. More of mine are actually summer stories. Uh, and like summer when I was, you know, a kid and a teenager, you know, before I was working, obviously, um, were very much dominated by the games I was playing and, and sort of playing over and over and over and over again a lot of the time before, you know, like either we would beat a game or we wouldn't beat a game. It didn't matter. It was just the thing that we were doing and really enjoying. And when I was very young, take a drink. It was the Donkey Kong Country games, of course. Uh, I mean, this went through all the seasons. It wasn't just summer. I have specific summer memories about the third game, actually, but... I remember playing the first game with my best friend, Allie. Uh, Allie is awesome and great. And we would just pass the controller all night. And we would eat Tostitos with, like, shitty generic salsa. <laughs> like, grocery store salsa. And it was the best thing in the universe. And we would play each level. Sometimes my sister was present. Sometimes she wasn't. Uh, just passing the controller. Talking about, like... The inner minutia of Donkey Kong characters' lives. Like, who do you do you think this one is dating this one? And do you think that oh, wow. that maybe if 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 this one just moved to a different island, none of this would happen? And like really going in deep on these characters' lives. And then we would make up like songs about them or songs about sort of the enemies personalities and names. Wow, this is so like you, special. You had this like little like because this is, it's not pre-internet, but it's not like the internet as we know it today. So, like, you had this, like, little, yeah. um, like, what, what's the term? The anthropology term, like, 
for for like tribes that have not been contacted by like yeah. mainstream <laughs> basically yeah like, i think it's just you uncontacted. had like an uncontacted <laughs> tribe of like donkey kong fandom we really did just like in your living room we really seriously did and this was another thing that we did and this sort of fed into all our wonderful lunacy this best friend of mine uh and i did like what we would call sketch comedy. We had a 1986 VHS camcorder and this is in just, just so you know, this is in the late nineties. This is not like in the eighties, but it was, it was already a clunky piece of technology, but we loved it. I am now just like layering stranger things, cinematography <laughs> over the story. It's like, not far off. <laughs> Although it, give it a little more nineties, give it some, some R and B yeah. in the background. Like, and you're you're there like TLC and Salt and Peppa are on in the background. Yeah. By the way, just to just to fully set the picture, and we would do sketch comedy. I'm doing scare quotes where we would basically make fun of our teachers, um, and or do like half baked like this would be funny in this scenario. And we would use Donkey Kong Country music as like the place setting, like oh a jungle level, then this will happen in a jungle. Oh wait, <laughs> a weird ice cave setting i don't know it's a little hard to describe without the amazing visuals of myself and my best friend and my sister making awesome sketch comedy with a vhs camcorder but we use the music from those games as like our very special (laughs) setting for it so these games were part of like the fabric of my life at that age and it was beautiful (laughs) so now i'm curious Let's talk about the other kind of um, yeah. like gaming all nighter. Yes. Are there any games where you have like particularly vivid memories of like all night sessions or like really stepping on the gas? Yeah, actually, hold on one second. I yep. gotta put the pup somewhere. I'll be right back. Sorry. Ricky.
Sorry about that. No problem. Do you want to? Sorry, do All you want right. to ask that again? That's my my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. Okay. I'll set it up for again. So let's uh, you know, let's talk about the other kind of uh, gaming sleepover, gaming all nighter. And I'm wondering if you have any like games that you have like particularly vivid memories of, uh, you know, just playing Dusk Till Dawn, or like you know, you're looking at the clock at like. 11.30 midnight and you're just like screw it we're doing this <laughs> uh, are there any games that like you had that kind of relationship with yeah actually um, one of those was Perfect Dark uh, so this is when I was like a little bit later in my teens I guess I was like 17 or so and my sister for some reason I think she was going to Montreal she was going on some trip I don't even know what it was and we ended up playing this game the whole night and just sort of talking about life as two teen sisters it was a very life is strange uh <laughs> like set up it was like yeah let's talk about life man as we played this game all night it was like we didn't put it we didn't turn it off until dawn hit basically uh and it was very like i didn't even know if the game would have mattered basically you know what it was but we we just powered through and had kind of a great time and i'm always going to associate that game with that night basically i also played that game a lot when i had a bad bout of insomnia Due to a mm -hmm. breakup, I don't know, sixteen or seventeen, what, however the hell old I was, it doesn't matter. Uh, but it was it was very much one of those, and I had one of those with um, I don't remember if it was Sonic two or three, or maybe Sonic and Knuckles, one of the Sonic games. Uh, my cousin and I played the whole thing basically in one night, and uh, we weren't like Sonic super super skilled Sonic players or anything, but. We got through it. Again, hot seating the game. Just just having the best time, just going whole hog, being like, yep, we can sleep tomorrow. It's fine. We're kids. We have zero responsibilities. We can stay up all night and just play Sonic. And I remember it just being, God, there's the best experience and probably the best experience anybody's had with Sonic ever yeah i mean that's their thing right <laughs> it's like you got to bring your own entertainment to sonic sometimes <laughs> probably yeah yes <laughs> i don't know it, i feel bad like sometimes it feels like hating on sonic has become like excessively fashionable uh but there's some okay uh, sonic games sonic colors was pretty good sonic mania yeah. looks all right you know t sonic just, 2 was pretty good i just don't remember if this was two or three so i just can't remember a single like classic sonic that didn't also feel like its moments of being like great and fun were so few and far you know what i mean like you live for those moments where like you were like ex perfectly flowing through the level and just like sailing around and like doing all this rad shit but like my god most of my memories are just watching that little fucker just like you know plummet to his doom time and again <laughs> with those eyes they're just Ugh. like ah! <laughs> that's yeah. that's the sonic sonic ha that's the oral representation of his face when he dies. That's what that noise was, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So th that segue was a bit of a, a bit of a trap, I must say, because uh, I wanted to lure you <gasps> onto, uh, onto the subject of a, a recent gaming all-nighter I, I oh, had. Yes. Uh, I finished Prey. Oh, tell me all the details. I want to hear. I suppose, I suppose I didn't really need to bait that trap. Nope. Uh, much. You I'm just all for it. Right in there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I finally got around to, to finishing Prey, and surprise, I love it. <laughs> Yay! Like, 
I totally get why people turned on it, uh, especially since I think if you played that game in a compressed time period, it maybe would have gotten old, uh, a little older yeah. than it did for me, because I, I, I certainly took my sweet time. But I really liked uh, Prey, Warts and All. I even think some of its like third act problems are thematically successful. Yeah. In terms of like what the game is saying overall, and then also like are maybe unavoidable considering like how the game is designed, right? Uh, and and what it's what it's like trying to evoke. And I'm just curious, like I don't think you and I ever talked about the end of this game, no, because uh, we kind of like left it off on Waypoint, yep, and we both were in agreement that we loved it. Now, like, we can talk a little more frankly about it. Uh, we'll probably need a spoiler tag uh, for, the, for this section. Yes. But I'm curious what, uh, what, what you think of that ending. What you think of... What, what, what your feelings were at the end of Prey. Sure. Well, I think, um, at, like most people, I don't think it was super secret that you were going to be... It's, it was going to be revealed that some kind of simulation element was there or some kind of AI element was there. Or I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be... It's all a simulation, or this, these are all visions you're having because you're in surgery to be, you know, modified in some way. I was, I was, I didn't lean either way too hard, but it wasn't a shock, I don't think, because there's so many hints about it. And like four or five times throughout the game, there are those kind of visions where you can hear Alex saying something and you see the sort of brain cells or the neurons light up and it's like, all right, yeah. I, I see where you're going, game. But it was a complete success for me because that was, I thought it was set up really well with the way it began. It began as, oh, it was all a test. The rug gets pulled out from under you. And so it kind of sets up your expectations for it to be that. So I don't think it was like an out of nowhere dream sequence kind of thing. It was like, no, they, this whole game has been leading you to this, like in a, in a pretty logical way. So it worked for me. I also, uh, my first playthrough, I'm playing through it again, slowly, but you know, surely. Yeah. Um, my first playthrough, I went through completely human, and all the AIs uh, of the you know characters that you had known that are kind of judging you on your performance a little bit at the end were yeah. all like, I think I got the best end or whatever one of the best endings because they were all like, wow, what a great person you are, <laughs> you did so good, you know, you rescued everybody and you helped everybody and you sure were all human and you didn't go near those nasty alien powers and blah blah blah. So I felt great about that. Um, and I'm, I went back immediately and tried it with a slightly different ending with one of the, basically one of the other ways you could reach the conclusion of the game, but with yeah. the same, you know, with mostly the same choices because it was only from, you know, pretty far into it onto the end. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could have done with like a little bit more variation, uh, in terms of, because there are like nine different ways you can actually reach the ending of the game. There's like nine different variables, I think yeah. that make a difference. Um, there's, you could go on the shuttle with that guy. You could, you know, sit in the captain's chair after hitting self-destruct. You can end it really early in the Arboretum. Once you have the key, you can, there's several ways of ending the game, basically. Um, and several ways you could go with, depending on who you help and, or, um, whether you take alien powers or not. So, yeah, I could have done with a little bit more variation. Cause once I, once I finished it the first time, I was like, holy shit, that was pretty cool. All right, let me let me do it totally different and see what happens. And not obviously not totally different because again, it was only going from pretty far into the game 
back to the end. It was just sort of a different exit door, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And it wasn't really different almost at all. And I was like, oh, all right. I thought this was <laughs> I thought this was going to really make a big difference, but okay, that's fine. Um, because I loved almost every second of this game, I wasn't, you know, like crushingly disappointed by the fact there wasn't a ton of ending variation, but I, it, it was like a little bit of a, mm, okay, fine. Um, I was more than happy with how I played Morgan. And I guess that that's where my satisfaction came from with the ending. Yeah. I, um, I don't think for me it succeeded in the way, like, for me, the best version of this ending is Bioshock 2. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Where absolutely. You have those really clear and well, like, well handled uh, moral choices yeah. uh, that you face. And each one is really distinct. Like, how do you, like, how do you react to, you know, each of these major characters you encounter in this game? Now, I don't think they're particularly. Well, um, they're not really. Subtle. I think if you, I think if you <laughs> kill Grace, you're nuts. I think if you if you if you kill Grace, you're a monster. Yeah. Uh, but in in the rest of that game, you you've got some tougher choices to make, and it does a really good job of reflecting those choices back at you. I did find Prey's approach to doing that just a little too, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm going to say it's, it's too bloodless. It literally is, right? It's like <laughs> yes, literally, literally like a bunch of computers uh, sort of assessing uh, how you handle each of the empathy exams right. uh, you were you were sort of given over the course of the game. And yeah, so I don't think that's quite as satisfying, but I do think something I really enjoyed is, uh, well, actually, before I continue with that line of thought, I need to ask you something. Yeah. In your all-human playthrough, were the military droids a huge pain in the ass? They were a pain in the ass. Yeah, they were. Um, okay. Like, I, I I, wasn't exactly stuck there because I also, and this is sort of because I played the game so slowly and uncovered almost every secret and probably 90 plus percent of the neuromods, I was pretty powerful. Even though I was all human, I I was super strong. I had the 300% health. I had, you know, all of the gun upgrades and things like that. So I did okay. They were certainly a pain in the ass, but it didn't slow me down to the point where I think if I had played all human but didn't kind of take my sweet ass time and find all of those things, it may have been an actual, like, you know, stopping point even. Yeah, I um for me they they were they were so trivial that I just plowed through it. I do wonder if I would have enjoyed the end game as much if I hadn't just been able to nuke those things. Yeah. <laughs> um although something a lot of people I think make the mistake of doing is they kill the droids. And it appears to me that there's only like the droid replicators only replicate new droids when they realize the previous operators have been killed. Oh. And so if you hack them, leave them broken. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then they don't come back. <laughs> Hacking didn't work as well because the problem is they would float around and then find something to fight and inevitably lose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they would the die and would call a new one. Fighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, they they're super ineffective. Um yeah. but what I really dug about the ending and part of why it may also really frustrate people is that the ending is all about like really retracing your steps across the station, 
covering a lot of old ground. And, like, yes, new wrinkles are being introduced in the environment, but at the same time, like, these are all environments you have... You play it like you and I did. You have basically, like, sucked all the marrow from. Yes. <laughs> um, but I actually kind of liked that because the end of the game... I was unstoppable for two reasons. One is that I'd done so many side quests that, like, yeah, I was up to my eyeballs and ammunition and, uh, you know, special powers and that kind of stuff. But the other thing is that every single section of every level, like, I had basically sort of opened all the doors, created my own passageways. Like, it was, like, now my space station. You know what I mean? Like, there were places where, like, yeah. I was even able to use my... um previous like catwalks and staircases that I'd made using the glue gun uh, to sort of just evade all kinds of encounters. Like I was basically speed running the end of the game because like at that point I knew every twist and turn. Um, I didn't fight. I didn't have to fight anything. Why would I? Uh, if I, if, if I was cornered, I could obliterate them. Most of the time I was just able to go sprinting past. Yeah. And I actually kind of think that's, that's a cool thing. Cause like so much of this game was, you come into the space that you, 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 you escape your initial prison. You're terrified. You're hunted. Like that space station feels so hostile. I remember like play sessions where I would play for like 45 minutes and I would basically do like two rooms. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would do like I would do a lab and the hallways around it. And I was like, I need a break. And by the end of the game, I'm just like, oh, yeah, all of this is mine. Like. I have now, like, become, like, now Talos 1 is completely my space station. Yes. And I thought that was, I thought that kind of worked. And I think it does tie into uh, sort of the themes of, like, you know, in that game, you end up being both hunter. You start out as hunted. You start out as prey. The question is, at the end, are you, are you in fact, the predator? Right. And I think the game does a really good job of eliciting all of that. Like, I do wish it had more interesting endgame scenarios and enemies to, like, throw your way. But I think, you know, I will take the sort of uh, schlocky pacing yeah. of the endgame <laughs> in exchange for, like, what it succeeds in evoking over its entire arc. 100%. And I also... I think how much you'll appreciate sort of the ending, at least the way I played it, also ties into how much you're invested in the characters. I was so invested in Morgan and her girlfriend. I played as a female Morgan, so it's Morgan and her yeah. girlfriend, who I saved. I had to go out of my way to get her medicine, basically. Oh, uh, I have a big question about that for you. Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Did you, did you confess? Oh, hell yeah. Honesty is the best policy. No, I was... Yeah. Oh, mm. I was totally honest. I gave her the tape. I was like, listen, baby, I this wasn't it's hard to explain because I'm kind of a weird version of myself now. So this wasn't like, you know, but here, this is a thing that past me did. And I'm not proud of it, but I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you because I'm honest to you. See, this is how invested I was. I like treated this like a real relationship. I was oh, yeah, so invested. Sure. I was so fucking invested in this. And I feel like you know, not to name names, but I feel like some people who played this game were not as invested in the character as Austin Walker. And I, I don't know why, because these are, I think, some of the best characters in this type of game, some of the best drawn characters in this type of game ever that I've ever played. Like, yes, it's sketches. It's not full paintings, but they're sketches that feel like 
smart and well-realized and interesting and nuanced in, in ways that you don't usually get in a immersive sim FPS, right? Like you usually get giant caricatures, uh, larger than life puppet master types, you know, you usually get Sandra Cohen and here you got Danielle Show and Abigail Foyle and it was beautiful and awesome. So yeah, I think being this invested in the characters made that ending, you know, where I'm talking to I don't want to get her name wrong because then that'll really show how invested I was, won't it? <laughs> oh, Michaela? Yes, Michaela, exactly. I knew it started with an M and I was like, I don't want to say Mackenzie, but anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, and like, I I like talked to her and I didn't even speed up. So my my first ending, uh, when I did the, you know, the my first playthrough and my first ending, I didn't even speed up time by sitting in the captain's chair. I walked around the bridge. I talked to Michaela. I almost shed a tear in real life. And then I just played back my favorite audio logs for the remaining like 10 minutes. Cause that's how invested I was in those characters. And it's like, this felt real to me in certain I ways. I found them too sad. Too sad. Yeah. Like I, like I had a hard time cause how they, I do not like it when <laughs> deeply pair bonded people are divided by murder. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, I understand, <laughs> but it's a really sweetly drawn relationship. Yes, uh, it's it's really good, and like there's a, oh my god, the um, when you get the recording of their role playing game session, oh. and the one is surprised that the other showed up, and you find her character sheet, and oh. it, like is clearly like a lot of effort went into like making a good character for this game, and I'm like, God, I'm dying. Yeah, fucking dying. It's so cute. It is so cute, and it's so. Perfect. Oh, and, and her and her voice like and the voice actress did such a good job with that, like, oh, you're here. Like, surprised, but also so fucking excited that some they showed up to oh, do God, your that thing so that you really want good. them to do, but like they're trying not to be like too excited, but they're clearly like over the fucking moon. Like that was beautiful. That was so it good. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, and and I also just like yeah, tons of praise for those voice actors, which I realize now I should have looked up. But uh, Same. the Danielle show was particularly strong, I thought, because the other cool thing about her is that she's a character you hear speaking in both voices, professional voice and then like friend and like friend and girlfriend yeah. voice. And it's really cool that like in terms of like who she is in the story. She's also one of like the smartest, most effective, and disciplined people on the station, right? Yes. She's uh, like like her and, and and Sarah Elazar are kind of like the two uh, most effective people in like figuring out what the hell's going on in the station and like taking care of uh, their their teams. And I really enjoyed that. Like there was sort of a the game paints a picture of like what Danielle is like as a coworker and supervisor, and then who she is as your buddy and your girlfriend. God, it was so it's good. So, it's so good. And I pulled up the voice list just so we can give these people some some props. But it's Mae Whitman who does Danielle's show. And uh, let's see. Is Abby on here? Is Abigail on here? I don't know if she is, but Sarah is on here. Sarah Elzar is Iris Barr. So those are some cool voices and people who are great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I murdered that dude, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> Like, didn't even, like, found him, did not even, like, he starts to go into an endgame speech. I was just like, nope, Alex? two in the head. You, you murdered Alex? 
Your brother? No, 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 the criminal. Oh, 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 that guy, the fucking, the cook. Walter, what's his face, yeah. I think? Yeah. Is it Walter? No, but that's not his name, though. Like, the cook... Right, he took like, Walter's right, thing or whatever. Right, it, it is frustrating yeah. that, like, you know, like, you under uncover audio logs of the cook before the big reveal. Yeah. And it's like... This is clearly a different He dude. was a nice like, guy, too. He was all, like, yeah. he made people their favorite foods, and he was, like, sweet. Yeah. yeah. He's a little dweeby. Well, yeah. Uh, but, but he was endearingly dweeby. Yeah. And, like, he was clearly just not this dude. Uh, and your character just kind of walks into that. But, yeah. Uh, so I was I was not having uh, not having that. No. The way I handled the end game... Oh, man. I had no idea to do what to do with Alex at the end. Yeah. Like... I really struggled with the correct end game choice was. Um, I blew the station mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I took the shuttle. Okay. I did that in my second ending to like do the second. Uh, I think that's what I did for the second ending. I, I, I beat it once. And then, like I said, I immediately went back into a save a few minutes before the end and, and did something else. But yeah, go on. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt there. No, I mean so that's that's it. Like I and I uh I, I killed one of the operators. Yeah. Um and spared Alex. Yeah. I actually before it was even a choice. This was so dramatic. I, I oh my god, this is how much I love this game. But Alex, if you if you kind of go through everything, everything Alex does really is something you or a past version of you asked him to do. Like he was actually loyal to you or you know thought of himself as loyal to you the whole way through so it's like it's really interesting in that alex seems like this fucking asshole who's doing all this bad shit the whole time but it's like he's actually loyal to you he's actually like a Mm. loyal brother and that made me really feel for him and also feel like you're doing the wrong thing buddy but you genuinely love me and want like to do what's best for me even though it's fucked up and it was beautiful and so when the sequence starts that there there's anti whatever there's no more gravity in the arboretum before it was even a choice i grabbed him and pulled oh him God. into the to the safe room and then the the screen popped up as like you know whatever the the prompt is like save alex or do whatever and i was like already did it baby i was like so proud of myself because it was my first instinct that was like i'm going to grab him he's going to be all right he's going to go to his little safe room i mean nobody's going to be all right we're all going to fucking die but Maybe the shuttle will get away. I don't know. <laughs> At least he'll die comfortably. <laughs> well, this is the other interesting thing, is that... So, you are positioned in this game as Morgan Yu. Yeah. But increasingly, the things you are hearing in records of yourself, the game does start hinting that, in fact, the real mad scientist is Morgan. Yes. That... Alex, like, and Alex even says to you at certain points, like, you wanted this. You're the one who this chose your this. Like, I didn't want to do yeah. this shit. And that's, and at the end of the game, he is sort of protesting, like, I staked everything on your dream, and this is what you're doing to me. Uh, and it's, it's painful. And by that point, like, you talk about, like, going back and re-listening to old audio oh, logs. Yeah. I went back and I listened to a lot of the old audio logs where Morgan spoke. And toward the end of the game, I started like I kept waiting for what that second fourth wall reveal was going to be, right? Yeah. Like what, like <laughs> the game sets up this whole, you know, reality in this game is not really real. It keeps hammering that theme home with like what the looking glass technology can do. Yeah. There's a point where if you go to the bridge, you can basically turn off space. <laughs> um, yeah. And for a brief heartbeat there, I was like, 
am I not in space? Like, is this is this sort of an, an ascension type scenario <laughs> where like the space station is actually on Earth and everything's just an illusion? Um, but one of the old recordings is of Morgan sort of laying the groundwork for what to do if this all goes wrong, and he's explicitly advocating the thing that Alex wants to do. And he says, but if this goes wrong, of course, Alex is just going to blow the space station and walk away because that's the kind of person he is. <laughs> and it's like this whole, like, now your memories are starting to be at odds with, like, the reality you're experiencing or your purported memories. And it is so good at setting up the ultimate reveal, which is that these are, in fact, like, that that growing disassociation you feel between you and the records of Morgan you find in the game is intentional that when everyone keeps saying like, eh, you may not be, you, you may not like who you were. You may not remember who you were. Like that's all like foreshadowing. It's all yeah. for really effective foreshadowing. Yes. Oh God. It's so fucking good. I, I like, I think it might be my goatee. I think it might. I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. <laughs> it's going to be really tough. Um, <laughs> Um, I need to give I need to give uh, you know Pubga its shot. Yeah. Uh, see see what Austin's all about. I need to play near Zelda's real good. I know you need a uh, special. I need to get a Switch. I know, yeah, or a Wii U that you can probably get for five dollars at a garage. I'm not, sale. I'm not I'm not getting on that Titanic. <laughs> I'm saying if you can find it at a garage sale for five bucks, yeah, that's fair. It's worth it. <laughs> poor Wii U, poor one out. It's it good. Was it, it was good, okay. but yeah. So it was. Uh, that game is brilliant in ways that I feel like other people, I don't know. The The general conversation around it feels like, yeah, it's a good game. Eight out of ten, kind of whatever. Four out of five, you know, good good game in a, year, in a crowded like year. And I'm life. like, fuck you. You don't know how good it is. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. Like, are you all not familiar with the, like, do you all not understand the fact that, like, immersive sims are by default the best genre? Absolutely. Like, 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 no, it's it. Yeah, it's it's a good, solid, immersive sim, which means automatically it's a, it's a pretty great game. Goddamn right. Oh. Yeah. No, I like. I don't. I am one hundred percent into that game. I loved it from start to finish. Um, I probably am not going to go back for a little while. Like forty two hours in that game uh, was was probably enough. Of which, like, probably eight was. Uh, was me hunting for that dude in the guts. <laughs> that but one guy. That fucking that guy. That one fucking guy. Yeah, that. I think it's pretty telling. The game makes you go to every other location, never back to the guts. The game's like, let's just, let's agree. Yeah, it's like, happened. no, no more guts. They should, they should just move that guy's fucking location. Just, 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 just put him somewhere oh, else. Th- there's something else weird though. Yeah. So I hadn't played for a while, but like there have been patches since the last time yeah. I played. Do you remember how Morgan's office has like this huge glass window overlooking the central atrium? Yes. It's now just covered with a giant slab. Are you serious? Your window is covered. I bet because you could get attacked. Like something could probably follow you and go through the glass. Well, I but maybe I had actually set up guns in the glass oh, to shoot shit. down uh the uh the, like the floating technopaths yeah, I think that yeah. were in there. So, like, I definitely abused that glass uh, a few times and used it as a way to transit parts of the lobby. But, like, 
I don't know. It feels really clumsy. That sucks. Uh, like if if they just changed the level layout, level layout, and that was their solution, they really destroyed like an impressive like vista. Oh yeah. Uh, as well as like. I thought, I thought it was a good layout, but whatever. It, it is a good layout. And like, yeah, okay, occasionally some buggy shit can happen. No, that's not to, you know, like people who had save bugs and things like that, that's, I agree, that's no joke, that sucks. But like, little things that can kind of go wrong, like, come on, it's an immersive sim. That's that's the name of the fucking game. Like, sometimes things happen, and it's a little weird. I don't know, whatever, it's a great game. Great, truly great game, Prey 2017. You can quote me. Put it on your grave. I don't know. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Let's go to our weekend correspondence, I think. Uh, After our beautiful sleepover with Prey, I'm going to read this letter from Andy. And Andy has some some words for you, Rob. Andy has some words for you about Kingsman. Uh Here's Andy. Bring it, Andy. Here's Andy. Andy says, sorry to be that guy but I feel the need to contest Rob's interpretation of Kingsman. Two main things come to mind. Number one, I don't think it's fair to construe Samuel L. Jackson's character as a climate activist in anything other than appearance. He's really a billionaire Silicon Silicon Valley tech asshole through and through. This is pretty clearly shown in his plot to solve global warming, which entails not fixing the environment, but rather just killing everyone except the ultra-wealthy. It's less love of the planet than it is hatred for the plebs, presumably trashing the place. His nominal environmentalism only serves as moral cover for enacting genocide of the lower classes. I suppose if you look at his environmentalism, excuse me, his environmentalism seriously, you could read that as liberals are hypocrites, but I prefer the rich are illiberal sociopaths. <laughs> Two, the main character's arc. Forgot his name. Sorry. Ed- editorial note here. His name was Eggsy. I'll never forget that because that's God. an interesting name. Uh, but Sorry. Back to Andy. Uh, the main character's arc does at first seem to be about becoming a hero by adopting uh, bougie values and norms of politeness. But I don't think that's quite right either. The Kingsmen are supposed to be these perfect gentleman spies, a kind of benevolent, if uh, paternalistic elite cadre, but the movie repeatedly shows that they're absolutely morally bankrupt. They make their trainees kill their pet dogs. Michael Caine turns out to be one of the bad guys. There's a statement being made here. I don't think it's about any redemptive value of civility. The kid gets new clothes, but his moral perspective never changes. What the movie shows, rather, is that institutions of elite power, be they tech companies, governments, or secretive groups of unaccountable, (laughs) unaccountable, murderous aristocrats, do not serve, uh, do not exist to serve most people and will sell them out in a heartbeat. So what I mean by all this, you could read Kingsman as regressive trash, but I prefer it as a kind of class-conscious revenge fantasy, at least in the way I'm comfortable re-watching it for Colin Firth church scene. Either way, I don't think it's politics come close to the insane stupidity of The Dark Knight Rises. Best, Andy. <sighs> I mean that's uh, that is good analysis. I think I don't know that I find it entirely like I mean it's a good read. Uh, Where I take issue is that that Samuel Jackson's character could have been a lot of things to communicate that he's like a rich Silicon Valley asshole. What's specifically chosen is that he's his issue is uh, saving the planet, Um, and that choice to me like says a lot about the film's values as is the fact that like the movie makes a big deal about Barack Obama being like one of the bad guys who's like head explodes and that big thing. And like, look, you and I have our own issues 
with Barack Obama as liberal icon. Yes. But at the same time, like, he's symbolic of a lot. Yes. And having the movie deploy him in that in that way, again, hints at something really unpleasant, I think, about its values. The movie's got, like, this... I don't want to say it's like this necessarily like this the South Park uh, morality, but it, but there is there is kind of this. Um, I, I feel like it it, it leads to the, it leads to this conclusion of all these people are hypocrites. None of them really believe this stuff. They aren't really on on your side. So in the end, go ahead and be the disaffected, egomaniacal exe. Because who gives a shit? That's I think. Like that—that's—that's that's the thing I don't like about the way it frames who the adversary uh, is, and that—that that I think is what, what kind of poisons the movie uh, for me. I think the the second point about like how it shows that these organizations uh, aren't for you—they aren't for most people. Uh, I, I think that's a re- that's a really good one, and I think yeah. that is what sort of makes Kingsman maybe a little more palatable. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I. I'll admit, I, I watched it, whatever it was, two years ago, and I wrote a review that was pretty positive, and I haven't seen it since. And I do remember being uncomfortable about the things that you brought up, and I, I, I am interested in this read, and I actually really do want to kind of go back and watch it again after sort of reading this analysis and talking to you about it, because I would like to, to pick up on more, if I can. I remember the church scene troubling me as well. Yeah, it um, seemed like... Do you remember what the setup for that was? Like, why did everyone go berserk? Ah, God... It was some kind. I think I, if I remember correctly, and again, this is a couple of years ago. Uh, Colin Firth, his character, I don't remember his name, was being deliberately set up by the organization, like by the Michael Caines or by the. Yeah. I think. Like he was collaborating with crazy Samuel L. Jackson guy, and they wanted Colin out of the picture, and so they hired this like murder cult. I. Again, it's been a little <laughs> while. <laughs> But they get everyone in the church to also lose their mind, become homicidal. Right. Because it's the music, because Samuel L. Jackson has some weird music thing that's basically like a virus that makes you go crazy, but it's in the music, yeah. and that's whatever he was kind of set up to it. I, yeah. It's been a little while. Yeah. It's been a little while. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Since I actually so they, saw it, so... Yeah. Um, Isn't there something I, there, too, though, that, like... He's a hip hop mogul, and the music makes you go crazy. And there's like a little mm, with like you know white shitty racist parents being grossed up by gangster rap. Is there something there, or am I reaching again? It's better. I, I think we need to. Yeah, we'll need to revisit. And we that. need to watch um, this again. <laughs> yeah, there's King, Kingsman problematic. Yeah, let's uh, just and say I think it was, I think if it escapes uh, a harsher condemnation, I think it was because Kingsman itself doesn't have the like. Kingsman is not a very smart movie. Right. I don't think like I don't think it actually knows what its point is. Um, yeah, and so I think it like stops short of being truly toxic, if only because it's kind of thematically incompetent. Right. Um, I don't know. Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah, I mean, I I still fundamentally think uh, Jackman probably had a good read on that, which is it's a movie that wants the spectacle of um, of 
mass revolt and uprising but without any of like the cost yes uh without any of the politics that come with that i think that's a decent read on it i still kind of like the dark knight rises and i would take it over kingsman like any day of the week i just honestly anne hathaway's catwoman was the thing that made that movie for me that's she's she was so much better than christian bale in that movie it was ridiculous she seemed like the only person who was happy to fucking be there and it was there yes (laughs) that was like such a thing i don't know there is kind of a um she is invested in that movie in a way that like and i think it's partly just difference in character like christian bale is an exhausted old soldier and that's kind of like everyone in the movie's fucking tired yeah uh, and it, it comes across, but I think it does give the movie this sort of ponderous, weary overtone. Yeah. You know, Gordon is exhausted. Yes. Uh, Batman is exhausted. Like the like the city, like they've created myths that are basically lies, and the war has taken too many ca- has inflicted too many casualties. Uh, and meanwhile, Anne Hathaway's Catwoman is like, man, I fucking love being, yes. I love doing crime. I love doing crime, and like having friends and just being successful in this fucked just up having setting. a good ass time i that's the movie yeah. i want to see catwoman fucking has fun that's all catwoman has fun there you go 2017's feel good movie of the year <laughs> i like that uh so our next email comes from mason uh in toronto uh toronto uh hi robin danielle I'm not sure whether to start with the question or the stuff that made me curious about it, but are there aspects of yourself that you don't get to see often, and when you do, does it cause excitement or concern? I was wondering this because there's two aspects of myself that I'm very proud of normally, but seeing how most games treat people like me, non-binary, pronouns they, them, and atypically autistic, it always makes me feel really, really squirmy. It's played for laughs usually, or just look at how progressive we are, uh, that isn't deserved because they're only showing stereotypes or the good ones. I want to see more trans-inclusionary games or games that aren't awful about neurodivergence, but it's hard to look at games that have them sometimes because it feels like an attack. It makes me wish I could be less critical, but it's important to be. Hmm. Well, I certainly agree with Mason in their wanting there to be better and more trans-inclusionary games and games that are actually good and positive about neurodivergent folks. I suppose my my thing for this would be like the way that that women with depression and anxiety are shown in movies and TV often as like just being like the weird quirky one or whatever. Like that annoys me. That sort of stereotype or that trope annoys me. And or People who are anxious and or depressed who just, like, can't get shit done. Like, the, like, I'm, I'm, you know, the the image of, like, a young woman who just, like, writes in her fucking diary and is sad and looks sadly out the window, that kind of stuff, as opposed to, like... Where the character is basically a Sarah McLachlan music yes! video. Like, yeah. Yes, and it's, like, it's so fucking frustrating because it's like, bro, I've got all this stuff and I... I go to work every day and I do all my shit and like, it's not always easy, but like most of us who are are lucky enough to be high functioning are not fucking staring out a window and writing in their diary all day. Like that's, that's a a stereotype that annoys me. And you see it in, I feel like you see it in all kinds of media, movies, TV, books, like games, I suppose, uh, use it as sort of a punchline or a joke. 
uh, in certain games, like the sad, wispy character. But yeah, I could do without that personally. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it's um, the thing that I guess I, I am most sensitive to is just like portrayal of Hispanic characters. Sure. Cause and it's this weird thing where like there are aspects of it that I find comfortingly familiar. Like there are things about a show like Jane the Virgin, for instance, mm-hmm. that I find like genuinely warm and funny because it does remind like some of the stereotypes are kind of true, right? Like I definitely had people in my family who are that sort of uh very dramatically Catholic. <laughs> um sure. And that was a frequent, like, point of reference for, you know, how, uh, you know, people like my grandmother and such would, like, engage with parts, like, with with aspects of the world. Uh, But at the same time, so, so, like, uh, so sometimes I'm like, ah, yeah, that that does feel, that feels familiar and kind of welcoming. But at the same time, a lot of times that's all those characters fucking do mm. is they clutch their rosary beads and go, you know, ay, dos mio, uh, you know, <laughs> Santa Maria. And like, and when that happens, it gets really frustrating because it's like, okay, but that's not who, that, that's not what people are actually like. At that point, it's just, it's just a caricature. Yeah. It's just, it's just minstrelsy. And it's, it's frustrating because it's like, you know, you can nod to some like, you know, cultural backgrounds and ways people sort of engage with and read the world without turning them into a caricature, but too often it goes that way. And it annihilates the capacity for those characters to have, like, human complexity. Yeah. Like, I have known, you know, there, there are lots of people in my family who are, yes, uh, you know, super Catholic, uh, you know, very, very old school in certain ways. And yet somehow they do not feel like anachronism somehow navigating this cra- you know they're not unfrozen caveman lawyer right. their way through the <laughs> through the world in some ways like they are they're they're you know every bit you know they're they're navigating the same stuff we are and that's what frustrates me is that too often it's like okay this is now a character note and that's all we got like we don't know anything about these other people their experience the the human existence they're allowed to portray is just their good peasant simplicity and Catholicism. And that stuff pisses me yeah. off. Uh, so that's that's the type of stuff I watch for is like, it is, you know, months ago you mentioned that like, Patricia and I had both keyed to something in Riverdale where just a character sort of offhand calls her daughter Miha. Yes. And that stuff does feel like, that stuff does like give me like a little bit of a warm glow. Because... It reminds me of all the times, you know, I've heard that addressed to my sister or one of my cousins. Uh, but it doesn't become the old, like, it, you know, it doesn't immediately become overbearing. And it's good to hear those, like, little nods to, to your experience. It's just way too often, you know, it's like, you know, you know what's wrong, Miha? <laughs> I just got back from my job working as a gardener for, you oh, know, 12 God. hours. Yeah. And I'm off to mass. <laughs> Like, that's sometimes how it feels, is, like, if you're acknowledged, it'll be, you're acknowledged just long enough to be insulted. Yeah. Absolutely. But I I do think that's going away. Like, I think, I think you are getting a lot more, like, Hispanic characters who are, like, that isn't, that isn't the thing they're there to provide. (laughs) They're just characters who happen to be Hispanic. I should fucking hope so. I mean, especially given the demographics of America. Like, come on, people. Like, your shitty old stereotypes are, have never been real. And also, like... 
how how shitty and dumb do you have to be to not understand how many Latina folks watch TV? Like, come on. That's seems a little obvious. But of course. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> of course, well, the and, things and, that seem obvious, right? Like the TV execs might not realize. Well, yeah, and it's definitely like not about these things that like you that were often excused for like, well, that's just the business. That's like who their audience is. It's like, yeah, it's like, those are choices. That's, that's <laughs> definitely like, no, that's like, that that's actually like trying to shape an image of a culture, Absolutely. Uh, whether consciously or not. It is like intended. It, like it, it is having an effect. Absolutely. All right. Um, and speaking of that, we have a letter about wrestling and that was, Oh uh, yeah. You like corrections. I, I, well, it's about wrestling, and it's also it feeds so directly into this discussion we're having because that was one of the topics that Glow sort of touches on the the show about women wrestling. And I will say this: I watched the actual promo for the real Glow, the actual nineteen eighties uh, show that was the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling that that the Netflix series you know sort of was inspired by. And they touch on how much the the sort of racial stereotypes and class stereotypes and all that kind of stuff would be basically the entire basis for someone's character. And they touch on it, and I think in a fairly intelligent way in the show, but not not enough. They don't go far enough. It's just sort of mentioned a few times. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, they have discussions about it, but again, it's not really the focus of the show. Whereas it could have, it sure fucking could have been. Uh, because watching the real thing, I was like, oh, holy good fuck. This is the most racist thing. Um, like, people's characters are just caricatures based on race or or body type or, mm -hmm. um, you know, class even. Like, it really is the welfare queen and the Latina girl who's called something not yeah. awesome. And, like, it's, it's, wow. That was enlightening because it was like, okay. They really weren't exaggerating on the on the you know in the modern show about like oh yeah here's your stereotype here's your stereotype here's who you're gonna be here's who you're gonna be and it was like oh jesus and on that note we have a good long email about wrestling from jersey dave jersey dave great name i'm gonna dig right in this is a long one so might need to get a sip of water in the middle of this one but we're gonna do it we're gonna get right through it <clears throat> here we go number one where Danielle can see women-only wrestling. This might, wait, was there a preface? No, there was no preface. This is just, we got numbers. He was not fucking around. All right. Where Danielle can see women-only wrestling. This month, starting on 828, the WWE is holding a women's-only invitational called the Mae Young Classic. It will feature many of the top independent female talents in the world, a number of whom are not yet signed to WWE. It'll show on the WWE Network, for which you can get a 30-day free trial. Number two on blood. They do not use fake blood in most wrestling. They use real blood. This happens two ways. Traditionally, a wrestler will draw a razor blade across their forehead to draw blood. This is called gigging or blading. The other method is called hard way. This is where a wrestler is either legitimately struck by another wrestler or bangs their head into a ring post to intentionally draw blood. Brock Lesnar drew blood from Randy Orton in a match last year using slicing forearms across the forehead. This is utilized for drama, not just to sell that the punches are real. Bear in mind that wrestling is more stage combat than anything, with much of the action relying on pantomime. That's why wrestling fans are able to accept most, flight, excuse me, most fights without blood. Blood is used to heighten drama. The hero's struggle can seem more real when you see the blood flowing down their face. WWE has a long-standing ban on blood, but this is sometimes broken in certain situations. Number three. 
on New Japan and Rob's assertion that wrestling is a stunt show. Wrestling can be a stunt show, but really, uh, really isn't just that. Ideally, wrestling matches do have plot lines and complex stories about two characters and a struggle that can be told in the ring, not just in promos and vignettes. New Japan is very strong in this area, as they rely on in-ring action for most of their storytelling. The action and presentation are far more sports-like, and character work in uh, in-ring through movement, body language, facial expressions, verbal taunts, selling of injuries, etc. is a huge part of the project. Uh, njpworld.com always has a selection of free matches available so you can sample some classics without laying down any cash. The stunt show aspect of wrestling comes uh, more from Lucha Libre, where characters are superheroes and the action is meant to be a spectacle. WWE is somewhere in between these two styles. There's a wide variety of pro wrestling out there, and it may take some time to uh, find what you like, if you'll like any of it at all. And number four, Lucha Underground. This show is really a telenovela with pro wrestling in it. It takes a while to get going, but it's one of my favorite shows on television. The seasons are very long, and I have to warn you, it would be an enormous time investment to get involved. That being said, I started a friend on it who never watched wrestling before, who is now hooked. So maybe check out some highlights. Apologize, this is a bit long. I could have gone more in-depth on any of these topics, but I hope it's helpful. I'm a huge fan of the show. Always look forward to the next episode. Thanks, Jersey Dave. Wow, Jersey Dave. Right. Thank you. I, I just thank you. That sounds that sounds pretty good. Um, I, and somebody else also sent me uh, a sort of indie women's uh, wrestling promotion in the UK that I will certainly check out when I have a little bit of time because Glow did certainly did awaken a, a desire in me to at least know more and genuinely open my heart to a little bit more of this stuff. Uh, so thank you, Jersey Dave. That was that was very nice. Oh wow, I. Uh... Jeez. <laughs> uh, Lucha Underground. I was like, oh, dude, I don't think there's that much, right? There's only like a couple seasons. Each season is like 40 episodes. Holy long. Jesus. It's a lot of wrestling. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh. And I, I can like... I'm getting to the point with my real life wrestling where I think I can start to appreciate the techniques. I just want to let you know, uh, Rob, I'm really proud of myself. I got my first ever double leg takedown last night on a person who was actually actively sparring with me, not just like giving me something because they feel bad because I'm a shitty white belt with one stripe. So feeling, I'm feeling good. <laughs> feeling Hell good yeah. today about that. <laughs> All right. While I'm feeling so good, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. Rob, you've been you've been watching something or playing something that's uh, that's really speaking truth to your heart. Yeah, I uh, so I went and I saw Dunkirk. Oh, excellent! Uh, right. Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. So speaking of The Dark Knight Rises, yeah, <laughs> uh, Christopher Nolan. Uh, I, I went and I saw it in seventy millimeter, and I did not see it in the seventy millimeter IMAX. Uh, sorry, purist. Like if I was, if I was still in LA, I'd have my choice of like six theaters with that format. <laughs> uh, here in Boston, we have approximately zero. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. The closest seventy millimeter IMAX theater is in Providence. Oh God, that's which, right. We do have yeah. that now. Sorry, we, I, my hometown, but yeah. Uh, no, I understand. You're, you know, you're, you're, li- you're, you're, you're a homer for life. I get to Come say on. we whenever it's a Rhode Island thing. You just get to. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I am still super tempted to try and see it down there if it's still playing there. But uh, it was, I really, really liked the movie. Awesome. Um, and I understand, like, why it is divisive. Um, you know, not least because it's its vision of... Uh, you know, the soldiers fighting against the Germans in 1940 is 
all white English guys yeah. uh, and some French guys. Uh, but that said, it is like it, it is a story that is super like located in this one like narrow historical moment, and it uses that to really good dramatic effect. Um, the thing that is the thing that's most striking about it is like if you think every movie needs to have like you know characters and story, this is really not it. <laughs> uh, this is like this is this is. You remember how like after um after Saving Private Ryan came out there was this feeling that like the first 30 minutes were amazing and then it turns into a tr- conventional war movie. And there's always that like brief disappointment, right? Yeah. That like the immediacy and the shock and the horror and the intensity of the opening sort of goes away and then the movie oh. becomes a very traditional film. Um Dunkirk kind of does the opposite. Like Dunkirk aggressively like aggressively tries to never uh have any traditional like characters really to speak of uh it is entirely uh about building the tension of of this historical moment and the individuals involved are kind of uh irrelevant hmm. it's um so the, the way the movie's structured is that it opens on the beach uh, you know, where the British army is just uh, sort of, they already look like survivors of a shipwreck, right? <laughs> they, they look like they've washed up on this apocalyptic, uh, you know, northern French shore. And, um, you know, they're, they're frantically trying to, you know, make their escape. And then concurrently, uh, so that, that story is told over the period of a week. And then concurrently, there's the final morning of evacuation as a British fishing ship sets sail for France uh, to take part in the rescue. And then also being told simultaneously, there's the one hour story of a flight of Spitfire pilots uh, providing aerial cover for the final like day of the evacuation. And eventually those three things are going to sync up and it's actually kind of cool seeing how they do, right? Like eventually all the stories converge and exist concurrently. Uh, and it's really impressive how how that comes together. But the thing I just really love about it is the movie has this like escalating tension and dread that doesn't have any like traditional rising or falling action uh, that you might associate with with a lot of movies. Like ultimately, it starts from a place of like pit of your stomach despair and dread and just builds toward like, terror <laughs> and uh and it pulls that off like the entire movie feels uh like uh just a piece of music uh is the way i would put it it's got it's got its theme it's got its tone and that's uh that's what it's doing and it looks incredible like it is it is just one of the most it is it is a movie ass movie <laughs> it is that musical uh, metaphor makes uh, certain things about some of his other movies make a little bit of sense, like approaching it in in such a way. Like I think Interstellar would make more sense as a piece of music than a movie <laughs> in certain yeah. ways, or you know, three different movies like it actually was. But yeah, that is exceptionally rad. Uh, I know I'm going to probably there's some point in my life I'm going to see this with my parents because uh, my dad is a tremendous war movie buff. Um, you know, he, he always prefers the classics, of course, because my dad has gone full old man 
in the last uh, year, in the last decade or so. But uh, I am positive he will uh, appreciate this, and I will appreciate it with them. I'll probably see it in theaters as well, but I know there's going to be. I, I would try to see it. In yeah, theaters. for sure. Uh, for sure. Like for sure. I think part of the power of the film is like that theater experience, yeah. and the movie just kind of like beating the shit out of you uh, with, with <laughs> sensory stimulation. That sounds pretty awesome. I mean, you know, in its in its own special way. Um, I'm going to just briefly mention Atomic Blonde because I talked about this already on Waypoint Radio. So I'm just going to say Atomic Blonde is my favorite movie of the year so far. Uh, it does beat you up in certain ways as well with just how good the fight scenes are. It honestly makes John Wick look fanciful. In, in certain ways, as opposed to sort of brutal and, and damaging. Uh, I still love John Wick. There's no, you know, yeah, I did say yeah. eat a dick John Wick yesterday, but I I didn't mean it. He doesn't have to. I I still like John Wick. John Wick's a good good dude, you know? Uh, but, uh, yeah, Atomic Blonde just has incredible style, incredible action, wonderful sort of queer subplots. Uh, Charlize Theron is a fucking vision in it, and you should go see it, and... My real, my, my, the thing I'm going to talk about more in depth, unless like I'm still thinking about Atomic Blonde next week, in which case, you know, maybe I'll see it again and I'll have real good thoughts. But uh, I do want to talk about a book I actually just started reading, uh, which is uh, Oliver Sacks' autobiography, On the Move. Okay. And this is a uh, courtesy of uh, Joel Fowler, our publisher over at Waypoint. Shout outs to Joel, who is great. Uh, so Oliver Sacks, of course, is a famous author. Uh, neuroscientist, motorcycle enthusiast, fitness freak who really likes swimming and lifting weights and running and all sorts of other stuff. And it's this really wonderful, I'm, I'm pretty early on into the book. I just started it last night, but I'm, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with his writing style and his way of just kind of telling a story through telling moments, basically, uh, especially for his early life and uh, things he did as a kid and as a teenager and his first motorcycles. And he's also a gay dude. I, I guess that's also important. Uh, and grew up in the 50s and 60s when that was super not acceptable and still kind of found his path in the world. And it's it's really, really good. I know I'll probably talk about it again because, again, I'm, I'm only, I don't know, uh, 25-ish pages in. But I'm, I'm already getting a, a good sense of the style of the writing and a good sense of who Oliver Sacks is as a person just sort of from this, this piece. And I'm, I'm in it. I'm always interested in a shocker because I'm a narcissist, but I'm always interested in uh, the ways that people have lived their lives in uh, by sort of combining things that don't always go together. <laughs> like you don't always get neuroscientist plus motorcyclist plus fitness freak plus gay dude in the sixties and you know, fifties and sixties yeah. plus, you know, all of these other things. And I'm always it always is very heartening to me as somebody who also tries to live something like that life, like where I combine things that don't necessarily go well together and and feel like genuinely really happy and and blessed to be able to do that because I get to meet all kinds of different people and do all kinds of different things. So seeing someone live that life successfully gives me a lot of hope and a lot of uh, happiness too. So yeah, it's pretty pretty cool so far. I'm I'm very, very into it and very excited to continue reading it. Oh, and I think on that note, on that very happy note, uh, it's probably time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net to keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter.
at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you listening to us, and we would also super appreciate it if you if you told people about us. Tell your cool uncles, tell your friends who you had sleepovers with your Nintendo, tell your uncle who works in Nintendo. I don't know. Just tell whoever you want. <laughs> <laughs> tell whoever you think might enjoy this podcast about us. And if you could take a second, write us up on iTunes, give us a little review. That would also be so lovely. We really do appreciate it, and it really means the world to us. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Mm-hmm.